I've always been an entrepreneur at heart. My name is Elon Jacobson, and deal-making is in my DNA. I'll be here each week talking with entrepreneurs and deal-makers about the crazy obstacles they've faced along their paths, and whether it's nature or nurture driving their success. Expect the unexpected on a deal-maker's DNA. All right, welcome back everyone to another episode of A Dealmaker's DNA. I'm Elon Jacobson. I'm here with a, a great guest, Greg Wade. Greg is uh, currently the managing, the managing director of NextSpace Consultants. He has over 30 years of business leadership experience in multinational environments. I'm, I apologize, Greg, I just aged you there a little bit. I know, I mean, this is a great <laughs> here. Jeez. Yeah, and, and Greg helps businesses scale for expansion, partnerships, innovative solutions. And he has experience in many sectors, cybersecurity, telecommunications, IT, transportation. And Greg also uh, sits on the volunteer board at big data analytics firm AfterData.ai and digital marketing agency Dreamline Digital. Um, so Greg, thank you. Uh, thank you very, very much for joining me. Um, and and the, the other thing I, I didn't mention was that Greg is uh, the author of a book called Mentorship. Uh, the path to supercharging your career, which is uh, of significant interest uh, to me and, and something that Greg and I have had numerous conversations uh, about in the past. So Greg, thanks again for uh, for joining me. Oh, thanks, Elon. Much appreciated. And I really appreciate uh, everything you do. And uh, it's, it's such a great podcast series. It really, I really enjoy it. I appreciate that. Thank you. So Greg, you know how I always start this off. You know, I, you know we've been uh, getting to know each other over the last few months. Um, I obviously know about uh, a lot of your uh, past business successes and experiences, but I'd love to take this opportunity to take a step back and uh, you know learn a little more about what that uh, that evolution looked like. And I always start in the childhood because it's fascinating to me. So 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 maybe you can humor me and you know go way back for for a little bit and, and you know would love to understand kind of what led you to to be where you're at uh, today. Mm, yes, indeed. And it's, it's always interesting to sort of reflect on what were those key influences. It's, uh, and it's, it's always great to be able to do sort of take a retrospective. I was born in the United States. Uh, we lived in. Well, we won't hold that against you, Greg. Yeah, thank you. I know. I know. There's always a challenge with that. It's interesting. I lived in New York, lived in California. And uh, <laughs> believe it or not, we made the move to the middle of Canada, Saskatchewan. And I'll never forget this. Um, my mom said, you know, there was nothing on this place we were going to. All I knew was they had socialized medicine. That's, that's all they had, that it was known for. And uh, she said, took a book out of the library, which is for those, those who don't know what libraries are, they used to house books. And uh, she took this book out and she, she said she cried for an entire year uh, after making, making the move. And it was an interesting difference, you know, California to Saskatchewan. You couldn't get two more. Different- you, you, you definitely don't get two more dichotomous, uh, you know, situations. Indeed, indeed. And and you know, as a young person, I would, uh, as some young people do, you know, you complain a little bit, and, and I was com- I could complain a lot about the cold. Okay, and you know, my mom would say, "Listen, come on, it it it, it helps to build character." And uh, I, I do have to say that that you know you look at on things in retrospect, and she was right. And, and so, you know, it's not the easiest place to to live and to um, you know to to grow. And 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 she was right when I think about it now, just about that building character, building a sense of resolve, 
and a sense of purpose. And I can't say I, I wouldn't have developed the same thing living in Southern California. I probably would have, but uh, you know, there's something about that environment that really did help. Yeah, struggle. You know, I firmly believe that. I think that struggle is meaningful to to growth. I mean, you, you know, let's use the the easiest example of like trying to build bigger muscles in the gym. You don't get that without struggling by lifting heavy weights. And and I think that you know that that metaphor translates extremely well uh, across the board. Yeah, indeed, indeed, indeed. And, and setting setting objectives and setting goals, so important. And so while I was in that environment, and I'll never forget this as a young person, I had this massive poster of Manhattan in my room. And it would be sort of this, this image of Manhattan that I would look at every every day as an aspiration. I'm looking forward to the one day, you know, setting foot in, in, in Manhattan and, and being a part of that hustle and bustle and the energy and the passion and, and, and you know, everything that it, it represents. And so that in many ways was a big objective for me it was just looking at that, that imagery and, and uh, trying to map out a path that would help me to get to, you know, to get to that point. And, um, you know, I, I do often talk about the fact that that I worked very, very hard, even at a young age, to try and set out what I call these building blocks to a career, uh, wanting to ensure that I built as many different components of those blocks that were different. So it wasn't on just one particular path, but I was gaining experience and exposure across a whole variety of different disciplines. And that was something that was really important to me because I wanted to be able to see a whole variety of different perspectives. So, so you're in Saskatchewan. Talk to me. I mean, you landed up in some pretty impressive names. I mean, we could talk about a, a few of them and I'd love to hear about some of them, but you know, how, how did you go from the middle of Saskatchewan to, you know, working with some, some multinational brands? Mm -hmm. yeah, indeed. And so a big part of that really rested in the fact that, that I had these aspirations and goals of living and working and experiencing, you know, a, a high, high profile, high energy, high impact place and scenario and situation. And again, nothing against uh, the middle part of North America, um, but you often do hear folks who, you know, made that decision that they want to go to either, either of the coasts for a variety of different reasons. And for me, it was to go to the East Coast and, and uh, that was a big part of it. And so once you land in the East Coast uh, of North America, it opens you, you know, up to very many, you know, all these different experiences, companies, um, you know, uh, innovation, change, creativity, et cetera. Again, nothing against the middle part of the country or the of the, the continent, but at the time, certainly that was a big part of it. And so I was very fortunate to, to post my um, undergraduate studies to uh, join on with AT&T. And I do joke about the fact, but I think this is true, that AT&T at the time was the uh, the farm team for corporate America or corporate uh, North America, as I like to say it. And I, I learned so much through uh, working with and working at AT&T. So you move from AT&T, you, you stay in telecom, right? And you, you somehow land back up in Canada. How, how, how did that happen? Yeah, so it's interesting because AT&T of old certainly would have been known for obviously landlines and infrastructure and access to you know buildings and homes, etc. Telecommunications access, long distance, local, whatever you want to call it. And at the time, uh, <laughs> this does date me a little bit, but uh, you know at the time wireless was catching on, and uh, you know those 
those big brick phones, I, I do have to say I did have one. But at the same time, I also had one of those little tiny Ericsson's that was about this big. And so as wireless started to become more and more prominent, whether it was for retail or consumer purposes or for enterprise purposes, then I um, took notice of this really amazing upstart at the time uh, called BlackBerry. And um, it was so it was BlackBerry that um, that both saw in me as well as I saw in them a great path to business development, and that is to establishing strategic partnerships between the company linking technology and and you know corporations who wanted to take advantage of that technology and to, to, and to make it even bigger. And uh, that's where I laid one of those most important foundational aspects, which is in the, the power of strategic partnerships. So let's, let's double down on that. You know, we, I, I know we had an interesting conversation about it. You know, a lot of partnerships don't work, right? Like people get, get into partnerships, I'd say the vast majority don't work. What is it that people get wrong about, you know, executing on a partnership? I mean, I guess first getting into one, and it's, it's great to get a headline, but what makes partnerships successful? And you've had some incredible, you know, international, large-scale partnerships that you've been involved with. So I, I imagine there's not many people better qualified to, to, to speak on the subject. I appreciate that. And and to, to, to add to that, imagine being able to bring together two long-time rivals in BlackBerry and Samsung bringing them together to establish a strategic partnership that takes advantage of the strengths of both companies and positions them in a very unique and powerful way for their prospects and their clients. And, and I'm very fortunate to have been in a position to establish that strategic partnership while I was an executive at Samsung. You know, often what happens is that folks who go into or desire to establish a strategic partnership don't take the time to ask the question that you just asked or that you just posed. And that is, so what are some of the pitfalls? What are some of the challenges that, that reside as it relates to strategic partnerships? Because I think the fact, I think the facts are that about nine out of 10 quote unquote strategic partnerships fail. That doesn't surprise me at all. Exactly. Exactly. And, and you, again, you're, so why is that? Well, you take a look at it and you say, ultimately the, you know, companies, and it's, you know, it's an adage or it's a, it's cliche, but companies are an accumulation of people and an accumulation of people all with different personalities, all with different interests, backgrounds, um, and, uh, and aspirations. And so one of the key ingredients that, that can help to ensure the success of a strategic partnership is aligning executive objectives. So there has to be something that's in it for both sides of the organization. It can't just be one way. Now, I know some folks who will be listening to this will go, yeah, yeah, I get it, Greg. You know, that's, come on, that's not, there's nothing new. But guess what? It is important and it is, I'll say new because all too often what happens is that folks talk about it, but they don't actually implement those important steps to ensure that there's executive alignment, that there's something in it, the partnership for both of the organizations. And that when there's sponsorship, it's not just idle sponsorship, you know, an exec, you know, helicopters in and just checks out how the working team is doing and, you know, asks a few idle questions. It's not that. That executive or executives on both sides of sponsors have to truly roll up their sleeves and ensure that they are a key part of, of the direction and driving the progress and the momentum and, and establishing those 
objectives or end dates or whatever that might be. Yeah, I imagine that the operationalizing of those objectives is difficult. I mean, it's hard enough operationalizing objectives within your own corporation when you have control, quote unquote, control over the individuals in their corporation. Now you're trying to, you know, operationalize something where you can't actually just boss the other side around. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I'll give you a great example that I always love to share in terms of a, a strategic partnership where, you know, the recipient of the message you and I are sharing would, would often go, oh, yeah, well, you know, maybe it'll happen. Maybe it'll work. Um, I doubt it. The example is uh, Apple and IBM. So imagine the challenge that was there. This was now probably about five, six years ago, give or take, um, where Apple and IBM at the very senior levels CEO levels made the decision that they were going to embark on a strategic partnership of development and co-investment in the build-up of enterprise-grade applications. And I can tell you that because I was on the, in this case, I was on the outside looking in. I wasn't at Apple and I wasn't at IBM, but I was certainly in the competitive space. And for those around me, they would snicker and joke and 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 uh, be quite uh, skeptical as to whether this partnership would truly bear fruit, would, would, which would demonstrate results. And, you know, I would remember listening to these folks and going, you know, you're, you're totally missing the point. The fact is that the two CEOs made a commitment both to them, to themselves, to the company, to the partnership, to their shareholders, that they would launch 50 new enterprise grade applications over the span of the first 12 months of that relationship. And I think they actually had a target of about 50, uh, they wanted to actually launch about 140, 150 apps over the span of the relationship, the, the, the agreement. And of course, everyone again, snickering, doubting, and trying to throw water on something that was pretty, pretty incredible. And guess what? They actually accomplished what they said they were going to accomplish and, and more. And that definitely instilled then a lot of fear and uncertainty and doubt into the competitor environments to figure out, well, how the heck could they make that work if, you know, if we were so doubtful of the, of the probability of success? And so that's another impediment, quite frankly, <laughs> to strategic partnerships is, um, uh, how, do you, how do we put it? Having your, your head up, your so-called, yes. <laughs> so, I mean, you, you and I riffed quite a few times on this idea of mentorship this idea of leadership, you know, you spent uh, quite a bit of time in corporate America. You're now, you know, doing it at more scale by having your own organization and helping many different organizations uh, with some of this, you know, the, the the topics we've already discussed. I'm really interested to get, you know, your take on on. Let's start with why did you write this 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 book on mentorship? I think that's a, a great starting point. It is a great starting point, and. Uh, Yes, granted, I have 30 years of experience. It's amazing because, you know, over those 30 years of, of experience, you live and learn, you are exposed to a whole variety of different people, personalities, et cetera. And personally, where, where I saw the greatest probability of results and success and fulfillment for people and for teams and organizations was when there were leaders who were captivating had charisma, had respect, were able to demonstrate empathy and and were objectives oriented, but recognized that the that the bringing together of all of these different people with all these amazing backgrounds and experiences, you brought them together that ingredient would make something special, which would 
lead in many ways, not all the time, to high-performance team environment and ultimately to success. Well, I observed both the positive as well as the negative. And in my experience, um, all too often encountering people who truly were, and many of them still are, toxic leaders. And part one of the reasons why I wrote the book was, one, the ultimate objective I have every single day is to dismantle toxic leadership and to build great leaders one leader at a time. And again, sometimes when I'm speaking to folks about that, they go, oh, gosh, Greg, well, how the heck can you build? If you build one you know, great leader, one, one leader at a time, how long is that going to take you? Well, I firmly believe that, that part of how we do this as leaders, as leaders who excel, as, as you and I do, I believe we do, and are truly interested in our organizations and the people in them, that we have every opportunity through mentorship to be able to help guide the next generation of leaders. And with that guidance and input and, and support, that next generation of leaders is going to then learn from those experiences. He or she is then going to take that on and then pass on much of what they've learned and experienced and where they've been fulfilled and then be able to share that same mentorship or, or personalized mentorship within their network. And I firmly believe that that, that, that can happen day after day because the fact is that there are so many people out there who are genuinely interested in helping those around them that those on the receiving end of mentorship or an opportunity have, again, every opportunity to engage with, with people who tr truly have their best interests at heart and who want to make a difference. You've told me that you believe that we're doing a worse job today than we have in the past of helping build the next generation of leadership. What's broken? Why has that happened? Yeah, yeah. So there was a there was a Gartner study, which I do believe is applicable to, in most of the Western world as an example, where 50% of managers, we'll call well, actually of leaders in the UK reported that they were ill-equipped to lead the teams that they were responsible for. Now, some may say, well, that means 50% are, are well-equipped. But imagine, you know, 50% actually readily admit that they don't have the tools and skills to be able to lead um, effectively. And so what does that mean to the efficiency and the effectiveness of the organization? What does that mean to the fulfillment and growth of the organization? It sure means that they're massively challenged. And this is why, Elon, as you and I have discussed, this is why, you know, employee engagement levels in, in the Western world, because this is where we measure them, are so freaking low. What went wrong to cause this? Like, it's one thing to state that, like, yes, to some extent that are ill-equipped, like, you believe that that number was probably less 20 years ago. What happened? What has transpired that has resulted in this? Yeah. So, you know what? We tend to leave our managers and aspirational leaders to learn from probably the worst person to learn from. That's generally their immediate boss. If you're at that mid-level to mid to you know um, senior level or within the organization and 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 the the foresight the thought by the whether it's the executive team or the ceo within the organization generally there's not enough time spent on ensuring that there's a proper and i know some folks don't like structure but there's a structure and process in place that is explicit 
an expectation of, a, of assigning and aligning the right leadership, those who are able to share and be able to support and guide with those up and coming individuals in the organ within the organization who want to learn and want to be able to grow. So are, are we basically playing a huge game of corporate broken telephone? This is it. Corporate broken tele telephone, or you can call it even corporate roulette because, you know, effectively, you know, you're just, you're basically leaving to chance the opportunity that somebody, somebody's going to figure it out on their way up, whether it's way, the way up the organization or whether they're entrepreneurs and they want to be able to, uh, want to be able to set their own path and be able to establish their own company, but then by that time, be able to establish the, their own culture within the organization. So it's it's roulette because there's just no, I mean, yes, there are pundits and yes, there are coaches and yes, there are guides, et cetera, et cetera. But they all, it all tends to be very, very um, reactive, I suppose, Elon, when I think about it. So if you're speaking to a young leader who, who really believes that they, they could be an aspirational leader and they're in one of these large organizations and they know this to be true. They're, they're listening to you speak and they're like, yeah, you're right. Like I'm getting horrible advice from a horrible boss who's not only not helping me become a better leader, but probably making me a worse leader by disenfranchising me. What should these individuals be doing? Like what is in their control? Is this, is this where the idea of maybe external mentorship can come into play? Indeed, indeed. And, and, you know, as you were posing the question, I was, you know, obviously reflecting and also demonstrating visibly the challenges that exist because it's amazing how, particularly young people, but I, I think folks who are mid, mid, uh, you know, uh, midway from a career perspective, but young people have absolutely no clue that there are these resources, i.e., mentors that are available to them outside of their immediate uh, network. And, and why is that? Well, we can certainly look at the universities and colleges, college systems as well. Granted, there are some that do a pretty decent job of aligning people, I'm going to call them mentors, but people with graduating students. So they get some sense of the outside world. But those universities and colleges don't necessarily set the right expectations of the mentor and give them the guidance either in terms of what's anticipated and expected of them as they work with those young people. At the same time, somebody who's in early in their career, mid-range in their career, they also have no clue generally that there are folks outside of their immediate measure. So how do you how do you answer that? Well, of course, you answer that by one, you know, writing a book on, on mentorship and, and, and sort of expressing the opportunities that exist to to frankly, everyone, it doesn't matter where you are in an organization or what role you may play, there will be four or five people around you or even one person around you, two people around you within that mentorship probability who can assist you and be able to help provide, provide guidance. So it's a variety of different ways, whether it's, you know, mentorship platforms, whether it's, uh, we haven't been able to network in person in a long time, but, you know, networking online, whether it's associations whether it's schools, whether it's through your company as well, just point blank saying, listen, I want to be a part of, part of your mentorship program. I just don't want to be learning from my immediate boss. I want exposure to somebody else within the organization who can help me to uh, to grow. So, so we took, you know, the, 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 the great answer for the individual. Now, I know you get engaged by, you know, some larger corporations. You know, I've, I've never spent a lot of time in a large corporation. So, you know, this is very much anecdotal. But, you know, from my you know outside perspective, they look like these massive, large locomotives where, you know, once they're kind of set in a direction, it's extremely challenging to change. 
So, you know, if you're speaking to some of these executives and they genuinely want to do a better job of mentoring their, you know, younger, you know, executives, you know, it's not just lip service, but they know how difficult it is to kind of change the direction. What's like one thing they could do today that would have a meaningful impact that wouldn't be impossible in their minds. Yeah, and I'll give you a great example because I absolutely love this experience. So I was working with a client who's, a, I think, the world's largest courier delivery company, Color Brown. And so one of the executives I was working with was a part of a, a cohort um, that was 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 focused on the next generation of thinking and creativity, innovation within the company. But he really stood out from my perspective because one, he was open to an outside looking in perspective. That's ex- so, Elon, to your point, this is what happens most often within large corporations, large enterprise, is that the influence, the input, the perspective, the experience, et cetera, that they have access to, even with you know the internet, even with the, the research that they can do, it tends to be very insular. And what an executive or leader or aspirational leader can look for is for that outside looking in perspective. And that's what I was able to bring to the table. And similar to your question earlier about accessing mentors outside of your company or outside of your team, I'm with you 100%. That is one of the most important steps to take. Now, what ended up happening with that experience, and I was actually, by the way, I I found this the other day, a thank you card from this executive and his team thanking me for the time they spent with me to help them open their minds and eyes up to the opportunity ahead of them. And guess what? Through the whole process, they ended up implementing what was called a Next Generation Innovation Council. And they also conceived of and invented North America's first bike, I'll call it pedicab bike delivery mechanism or system in Seattle. And 100% green. And uh, that was because one executive had the the balls or had the foresight, the strength to say, you know what, I don't know everything. And I am much better served if I open myself up to somebody or experiences outside of my four walls or my company. And let's just see what can be recognized and realized through that experience. So, so with your, your, your consulting experience, you know, dealing with, you know, numerous companies for the last few years, how uniform are the problems that these corporations face? So I love that. I love that because I was also the vice president of the Canadian Chamber of Commerce in Singapore for eight years. And so how I'll answer that question is first giving a bit of context in that Southeast Asia environment. So imagine we would have companies from Canada, because it was a Canadian Chamber of Commerce, interested in expansion into Asia Pacific, and particularly Southeast Asia, who would come on over to Singapore and say, I have this widget I want to sell. I sell it in um, Edmonton, and I want to be able to do the same thing here in, in Indonesia. And they'd come in with this, this mentality, the same mentality of expanding into Calgary as they did of expanding into, say, you know, uh, Calcutta or Jakarta or whatever that might be in in Southeast Asia or in uh, South Asia. So I had this adage as well, you know, what works in Denver doesn't work in Delhi. It doesn't necessarily work in Delhi. So part of it is the, the, the sort of the, this repeatable challenge and issue that 
companies do have, and I experience so the parallel is companies here in North America, is that they generally don't know what they don't know. And what can happen or what I really work hard to assist them with is to be able to see or to recognize those red flags and those potential bumps along the way as they look to expand their business, whether it's domestically or whether it's internationally. And that's by posing a lot of questions. That's why that's by providing, you know, insights and perspective as well in terms of sort of similar challenges or issues and then effectively really challenging the leadership team you know, in terms of the direction that they're taking, the steps that they're taking, and and really helping them to understand that there's a bigger bigger picture than just selling that one uh, widget in uh, in Edmonton and expanding into Calgary. So, Greg, before I let you go, I want to go back to the one of the first things you said in this conversation. You mentioned that you had this you know desire to build you know the building box to a successful career. At a high level, you know, that was interesting to me and I didn't ask you at the time, but what are those building blocks? Yeah. So what was really important to me was to ensure that, that, uh, and by the way, I, I, I think for the longest time I wanted to be a lawyer. <laughs> so, Aren't you glad you didn't go down that road? <laughs> I'm glad I didn't. <laughs> you know, and, and actually by saying that, one of the things that, that un- it underlines for me though, is that it was important for me to understand that space so that in business i could at least understand you know what the heck you know sort of the construct to a contract you know the uh, negotiation uh, precedent history whatever that might be and so i did certainly take steps within uh, my grad studies and undergraduate studies to to take you know components of the of the law and so that's part of it, right? Is is building out these building blocks across a whole variety of different disciplines. So, so would that just be like just get as much experience as you can? This is it. This is it. You got it. So I was I was experienced in finance. I was experienced in um, in uh, accounting. I was experienced in business development, in partnerships, partnerships, marketing, um, you know, general management, manufacturing, transportation. So I really, and then I have to say thanks in many ways to an AT&T, I think, for supporting that, but it wasn't just AT&T. And, and so once you have those building blocks in place, then that gives you, it gives you that strong sense of foundation. And that with that strong sense of foundation, you can either take those transferable skills and grow, or you can take a very specific skill that you've generated within one of those disciplines and either you know, be an expert at it, or you can continue along this path of a uh, generalist, which I think is so important to the future, is to be able to have great generalists with great transferable skills. We can see across a variety of industries and verticals and challenge. And then back to the point about that, uh, you know, courier company, um, the Brown, is is taking in the outside looking in perspective and helping to be able to do something completely different or innovative or uh, or. Um, you know, uh, challenging in the marketplace. So it's a, it's building that, that base of experience. Yeah, I think it's, I think that's always important. Not only to know what you love, but to know what you don't want to be doing. Right? Yes. So going back to the point of of not going into law. <laughs> exactly. That's right. Exactly. And knowing knowing your, knowing your strengths. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So, Greg, I mean, I can speak to you for days, but there's probably a lot of executives that are listening to this that are, you know, struggling with a broken partnership or struggling with this idea of scale. What's the best way that they can kind of you know, learn a little more about you, follow along in your journey or reach out? Yeah, well, that's great. I appreciate that. And um, 
Well, I guess first off really is um, know that there are resources that are available to you, to the to those who are challenged outside of the the big consultancies. You know, my goodness, we all te- you know, we all tend to want to kind of go. I, I used to write big checks to McKinsey. Uh, no offense to McKinsey, and we did some good stuff. But at the same time, you don't always have to write those those big checks to uh, you know to McKinsey. And and so that for, from my perspective, uh, you know, I have um, GregoryMWade.com is my website as an example. But at the same time, I also produce a lot of content on a platform that I call the Defender. And uh, we also could talk probably another podcast on the Defender and the big reasons why there. But certainly, folks can also you know, take take the opportunity to learn a little bit more about me and my approach and what I find interesting and important because then I can, you know, lend that to those executives who are challenged as an example. And then of course, you know, the uh the opportunity as well to learn more about how to drive mentorship and support and truly sponsor um very strong mentorship programs within the organization. A big part of the, the you know the ebook that I wrote as well as um I've got a whole end to end process that I've defined uh, called path that can really assist those executives as well. Well, Greg, again, thank you very much for joining me. I know that we'll have numerous more conversations uh, on this topic. So uh, thanks. And uh, until next time. That's it for this week. If you enjoyed what you heard, rate us and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. Until next time on a DealMaker's DNA, where you can expect the unexpected.